Neural Pathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, and neurorehab. Although functional neurosurgery has been recognized as an effective treatment option for movement disorders for more than four decades, it is estimated that only about 10% of surgical candidates actually undergo surgery to improve their condition. With the arrival of new technologies, highly targeted approaches, and advent of new communication channels to reach patients, this landscape may be changing. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing surgical decision-making in movement disorders. I'm your host, Alex Ray Grant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Ben Walter join me for today's conversation. Dr. Walter is head of the Deep Brain Stimulation Program and a staff neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Ben, welcome to Neural Pathway. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let me start by having our listeners get to know a bit about you. Can you tell us about your training and when your practice brought you to Cleveland Clinic? Very good. Well, I've been practicing in Cleveland for 16 years. I came here uh, in 2004 from uh, Emory University. And uh, uh, at that time, I joined the Cleveland Clinic and uh, spent several good years uh, at the clinic and then uh, moved away to a, another institution uh, for about a decade. And I uh, just came back in uh, 2018, and I'm really excited to be back uh, with uh, friends and colleagues and many familiar faces to uh, help uh, co-direct the uh, Deep Brain Simulation Program and Section Head for the Movement Disorders Program as well. Yeah, very good, and we're happy to have you back, Ben. Let's go to let's talk about surgical interventions for movement disorders. Like uh, like as an epilepsy surgery, um, these interventions are looked at as being significantly underutilized in the target population. Can you give our audience some perspective on when surgery should be considered for patients with Parkinson's disease and essential tremor? Well, Parkinson's essential tremor are the two most common disorders that we treat with uh, deep brain stimulation and other surgical therapies. Uh, it's a little bit different uh, for the two conditions. Uh, Parkinson's patients uh, are good candidates for uh, for the procedures when typically they respond well to medication, they have a typical form of the disease, uh, but they've advanced to the point where they have motor fluctuations where the medications are no longer giving them consistent, uh, constant benefit, and they're starting to wear off between doses, and, and maintaining good control and quality of life becomes more of a struggle for them. Uh, deep brain stimulation in this case uh, helps give them continuous relief, uh, and uh, similar to uh, the impact of medication, but without these fluctuations, uh, they're able to control uh, tremor, dexterity, uh, in some cases walking uh, uh, all the time uh, to a much greater degree. Uh, central tremor uh, is, is a bit different uh, in that with the central tremor, the medications work in only about half of patients. And uh, the real challenge uh, uh, for these patients is when the symptoms become uh, more uh, of an impact on, on their quality of life. And uh, for these patients, uh, if they're not responding to medication uh, or, or if they are when the symptoms are impacting their quality of life, uh, they're a good candidate potentially for a number of different treatments, uh, either deep brain stimulation uh, or a newer procedure that we have called focus ultrasound. Uh, and this is predominantly uh, for the tremors 
uh, in their arms. Uh, some patients will also have head and voice tremor with essential tremor, uh, and that tends to respond to other therapies and not so much uh, deep brain stimulation and focus ultrasound. So once surgery is presented as an option to a patient, I assume you have a collaboration between a number of providers. Can you talk a bit about the screening process your team uses to determine if the patient's a good candidate for surgery? What makes a person a good candidate and what makes them not a good candidate for surgery? So we have uh, an extensive multidisciplinary team and approach to uh, evaluating and treating these patients. And uh, this involves uh, neurosurgeons uh, evaluating the surgical risk and from the surgical perspective, uh, movement disorder specialists, uh, neurologists like myself, uh, neuropsychologists that are looking at our patients from the perspective of the impact of their disease on uh, memory, thinking, cognition, uh, psychologists that are looking at our patients and understanding if they have significant depression or anxiety uh, that are in- impacting or coloring uh, how this condition affects their quality of life. And so really we, we uh, look at, uh, from all these perspectives, our team gets together uh, and evaluates these patients as a group. Now, the Parkinson's patients, we will actually take them off their medications, look at their response to medication in the office, having not taken it from the night before, uh, and get a good assessment for what their medications uh, do, which to some degree gives us an indication of how they would respond uh, to DBS uh, or if they're a, re- a good responder to therapy in general. Uh, the real exception, though, for the Parkinson's patients is uh, some patients with Parkinson's have, have very stubborn tremor. Uh, that doesn't respond to the medication, and, and those patients will still respond uh, to deep brain stimulation. Uh, there are different targets that we may use, and they also respond to uh, the focus ultrasound, which is, again, a, a newer technique that we're also uh, using more and more frequently. So are there any sort of major contraindications for surgery that, that you guys look for, or, you know, major uh, stumbling blocks in terms of surgery helping patients out? And I look at it from two perspectives, really. One is uh, hard uh, contraindications uh, would be things like uh, dementia. If we find uh, excessive surgical risk, if they have a, a number of different medical problems that would make it difficult for them to have surgery in general, uh, they, they may not be a candidate uh, for either procedure. Uh, certainly, uh, maybe more for deep brain stimulation, focus ultrasound, it actually uh, doesn't require anesthesia. Uh, so it, it is a little more forgiving as far as other medical risks. Um, one thing that's really important is uh, aligning the patient's goals. So uh, it's really important that we understand how, uh, from the patient's perspective, the disease is affecting their quality of life, what their goal is for the surgery, and making sure what the surgery can deliver aligns with those goals. So, of course, if there's a mismatch where uh, you know they may have uh, some areas where they could benefit from a procedure, um, but that's not really what they're counting on, then uh, that patient, unless their perspective changes with a greater understanding of what it can deliver, that patient wouldn't be a candidate for the procedure as well. It's critically important uh, for patient satisfaction and to have a good outcome that we are able to deliver uh, what the patients are looking for. And so that really is our goal to align with what, what they feel they need to improve their quality of life to uh, the degree that it's necessary. So uh, I know it's a uh pretty topical issue right now, but uh, you guys have published on um, integrating telemedicine or virtual visits into your process before, and even more so, it's important during the COVID pandemic. So 
Can you talk a little bit about about that work and about how you've used telemedicine in your process? Uh, Telemedicine lends quite nicely to the practice of movement disorders uh, because of a lot of what we're evaluating. Not everything, but a lot of what we're evaluating uh, is visual. We're looking at how people move uh, and looking at their movements uh, as far as excessive movements or movements uh, that uh, are are smaller amplitude and, and slower than they should be in these different conditions. So we can evaluate that fairly well uh, through video and telemedicine. Um, we can't sense the rigidity, um, but usually we can make uh, a good diagnosis and come up with a good therapeutic plan um, with, with the majority of the information that is present. So our group has used telemedicine for quite a while uh, prior to COVID. And as you can imagine, that uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic has really caused, I think, an acceleration of a digital transformation. Uh, and that has also impacted us, of course, uh, probably even to a greater degree where uh, even still a lot of our, most of our practice uh, is uh, telemedicine right now. And my expectation is uh, into the future that uh, we will have greatly larger predominance of telemedicine in our practice uh, than prior to COVID-19. Uh, so how, how do we use uh, telemedicine? Uh, it's, I think, very useful for patients, particularly uh, that are traveling from uh, or, or thinking of traveling from other states. Uh, we can offer uh, an excellent consult for these patients. Uh, and I think probably one of the most important first things that patients are looking for uh, that are interested in uh, something like deep brain stimulation or focus ultrasound is just to understand uh, a bit more about the procedure uh, which procedure is best for them? What are the differences between the two? When is it time? Uh, and, and looking at their symptoms and their goals and objectives. So we can do that very well through telemedicine. It's really a conversation and, and taking a look at, at what, what the impact is on their, their lifestyle. And so uh, with that, we can, we can help get them ready for moving through the process a lot faster uh, if they are interested in further pursuing a deep brain stimulation or uh, or focus ultrasound, and and telemedicine is a great way to do that. So can we just go back to the the actual interventions that you guys look at? Can you talk a bit more about uh, interventions available? I guess particularly focused ultrasound, which is newer. And how do you guys determine you know what approach is most appropriate? Well, it, it comes back to again uh, the patient's goals is probably the the most pivotal. Um, piece of information and uh, helping to guide this decision-making process uh, that's really a partnership with our patients. Focus ultrasound, uh, again, is a non-surgical approach. It's still uh, an intervention on the brain. And uh, one limitation of focus ultrasound is that it can only be done on one side. So we're really targeting this for patients who have the majority of their impact is typically their dominant hand and the kinds of things that they can't do is because of the tremor in, in that dominant hand. They can't, uh, they can't write. They can't eat. They're embarrassed when they go out to eat because they can't keep uh, f- food on a fork or a spoon. They can't drink from a cup. Uh, they may not be able to uh, dress themselves and have trouble putting makeup on. Or they might have trouble with their work. But, again, uh, really limited by that one hand. Uh, if they're... Uh, impairment is really dependent uh, on uh, both hands and that their goals are dependent on seeing improvement in both hands, 
then uh, deep brain stimulation uh, is the only way to achieve that. Uh, and, and quite clearly, then those patients should be choosing deep brain stimulation uh, instead of focus ultrasound. Uh, focus ultrasound has the advantage uh, that there's no hardware uh, implanted in focus ultrasound. So you don't have a pacemaker uh, and there's no upkeep uh, necessary for it. Uh, the disadvantage in contrast to deep brain stimulation is deep brain stimulation uh, because it's a pacemaker for the brain and it's uh, programmable and adjustable that we can change the settings and, and give patients further improvement uh, as the disease progresses. So uh, it is something that can be adjusted and it's also reversible. Uh, if you had permanent side effects from focus ultrasound, uh, those effects would be permanent if they persist after the, the initial period. Uh, some people might have a little bit of a healing phase uh, in the first week or so. Uh, but if they had a side effect from focus ultrasound uh, after that time period, it, it, it tends to remain permanent because it's related uh, to a, a very precise uh, lesion that was placed uh, in the brain using this technology. Uh, deep brain simulation, while it's a surgical procedure, uh, it's not interrupting the brain tissue is, uh, except just to pass a tiny little wire uh, into a location in the brain. And really all the uh, effects and benefits and side effects of deep brain stimulation uh, after the initial procedure come from turning it on, uh, which is completely adjustable and reversible. Uh, there are risks to uh, these procedures, and certainly uh, there's a risk of a, a bleed in the brain with, with deep brain stimulation uh, or infection or you know, hardware breakdown. And, and certainly something like a bleed in the brain is something that um, that it would not necessarily reverse itself over time. So uh, that kind of risk is also different from focus ultrasound where you don't have that particular risk with that. So as you can see, there's, there's pros and cons to, to the two procedures. Uh, and, and one may be perfect for one patient and, and, and the other may be perfect for another, depending on what their goal is and what their risk is coming into it. So let's talk a little bit about the kinds of results and outcomes uh, from these procedures and what does success look like and how do you guys try to measure it? Again, success objectively is probably dependent more on uh, the particular disease state. If we're talking about Parkinson's or, or central tremor, um, maybe more generally it's achieving the goals that the patient is looking to achieve. Uh, if, if we've you know, satisfied their goals, they're able to do things that they haven't been able to do in a long time, um, then you know we've liberated them from some of the uh, impact of, of this these conditions. For Parkinson's disease, it looks like you know typically a patient that's not fluctuating from minute to minute, you know, worrying about whether their medication uh, is going to work or not. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't kick in and it doesn't work, and they can't go places. Not so much because they can't function. Uh, it's because of the fear that they can't function, which is which is real, because they don't know if their medication is going to work um, when they need it to work when they're out and doing things. Uh, they may not be able to be employed for the same reason. Uh, when it comes to tremor, or even tremor and Parkinson's disease, and we can do either procedure for tremor and Parkinson's uh, or tremor from essential tremor, uh, reducing that level of tremor uh, to something that is very minimal uh, and at least to the point where it's not impairing their ability to do the things that they want to do. I mean, typically we see uh, in the range of, of 80% reduction uh, of symptoms uh, in tremor. 
uh, with with deep brain stimulation, and, and I think focus ultrasound uh, is is relatively similar to that. Uh, it's not always complete. Uh, there might be a little tremor left, um, but usually it's either not so noticeable, or or ideally it's not impacting their ability to do things. And most of the time, that's that's the case. So Ben, are there um, any other novel techniques on the horizon that you think may improve? the ability to select or treat patients, anything coming along down the pike? Well, these uh, treatments are highly technologically based, and the technology is evolving at a very rapid pace. And so it, it just changes day to day. It's an exciting area to be in because um, we keep having new tools and new ways uh, to make bigger impact on, on our patients' lives. Uh, deep brain stimulation uh, now has uh, what we call directional leads or you know, the wires that essentially go uh, in the brain. We're able to steer the current in different directions up and down the lead, uh, but also sideways uh, because the leads have contacts that face in different directions. And we're able to really customize this um, based on the area of the brain that we need to impact uh, to give them benefit. Uh, in the future, in the very near future, we'll have uh, technologies where we can sense uh, the brain activity that's going on in our patient uh, and be able to uh, basically have it automatically adjust the stimulation settings depending on, on their need based on a signal that's coming from the brain. So that kind of responsive uh, technology uh, is, is on its way. It's, it's very close to uh, being used in the United States and it's going to change things dramatically as well. So we have a lot of different technologies. Uh, a lot of wearables uh, are uh, being used now to uh, monitor patients with movement disorders. And so these wearable technologies also can be kind of looped into the treatment algorithm, both in identifying patients for therapy and, and also potentially for controlling their therapies as well. Well, Ben, before we sign off, do you have any closing comments for audience members who may face the challenge of treating patients with movement disorders that are unresponsive to medical management, anything else to advise them before we uh, finish here? I would just say that for those that are good candidates, these surgical options can be very rewarding to offer to patients that are good candidates and to see how happy they are when they're able to relieve symptoms that have been troubling them for you know, five or 10 years or even sometimes 20 or 30 years in some cases, particularly with a central tremor. Uh, we see patients who've been living a good part of their life with a slowly progressive uh, deterioration in function. And just to be able to offer them something uh, where it dramatically changes, you know, we see patients you know, come to tears and wondering why they haven't uh, done this earlier because it, it is uh, so disabling. But, you know, these are big decisions to make. But we're happy to evaluate patients uh, even, you know, virtually. Again, that's very easy to do. Um, we can get people in very quickly uh, without much travel and uh, get them closer to being able to make a decision uh, and then bring them to Cleveland when, when really it's necessary uh, to go through the rest of the evaluation and move forward with surgery. Uh, and, and that's really what we've been aiming to do with our program. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. It's always exciting to learn how treatment options are evolving for our patients and certainly you're in a very exciting area of medicine. So uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, 
clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro, or follow us on Twitter at MD. all one word, that's at CLEClinicMD on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.